The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, the biggest bull on Wall Street, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovic, joins us exclusively. The three reasons why he sees another 20% upside for the market next year. Plus, Bitcoin soaring above $20,000 for the first time ever. And we have the one chart that shows this breakout is just getting started. And we are standing by our results from Lennar, four results from Lennar. The Home Builder Expect to report earnings any moment. We're bringing the numbers as soon as they cross. But first, we start with the Fed committing to remain all in. Jay Powell and company wrapping up their final meeting of the year. The central bank signaling rates will remain near zero for a very, very, very third very long time. But they did up their economic outlook slightly for next year. So, Brian Kelly, all in. What do you do with this information? Yeah, that's, that's the question, right? So, I mean, we've known they've been all in for a long time. And so that's probably why we didn't really get that much of a, a uh, market reaction from today's news. The next step for the Fed uh, that we have to worry about and we have to think forward about this is what's going to happen if the economy does pick up? So if we get this consumption boom, the vaccine works, everybody gets inoculated, and then we get a consumption boom. Everybody wants to go out to dinner again and fly and travel and all of these things. Uh, does that increase inflation? And then what does the Fed do? The Fed's committed for several years to keep interest rates low. So they may have inflation raised higher. Let's call inflation at 4%. They may have to peg interest rates at 2%. But you would still get this negative real yield, which we've talked about before, mm -hmm. which would be very positive for assets, including stocks. Yep. Um, and, and Guy, I think that this really is underscored by the Fed's tweak in the language in the statement. That sort of conundrum. What does it do if inflation, if the economy really picks up? Because instead of saying for a long time, so a time-based goal of how long they're going to stay at zero. It's now an outcome-based goal. They talked about until substantial further progress has been made toward maximum employment and price stability goals. So if this is achieved quicker, you got to wonder, what does the Fed do at that point? I don't think they know the answer to that question. I'm not trying to be glib. I really don't think they know the answer. I, and, I, and this comes down to, Melissa, to be careful what you wish for, because it's pretty clear, I think, to everybody that they're hoping that they start to see an uptick in inflation. And obviously, Steve Leisman could probably speak to this. But, you know, they, they want it in a slow uh, and just sort of stair-step way. I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think when it comes, and I think it's here already, it's going to come in, in, in a wave. And I don't think they're going to be able to control it. And I don't think they know what to do on the backside of that. So, look, I've been concerned about their... Um, their insertion into the markets for quite some time. Clearly, the equity markets haven't cared. Maybe I shouldn't care either. But, you know, getting to a point now to Brian's uh, the, the, the points that he just made, where next year is going to be fascinating if all these things come to fruition. And by the way, those are all the things that we want to happen. But again, be careful what you wish for. Should we start worrying about that, Dan, in your view at this point in the depths of the pandemic? 
Um, and we're seeing, you know, perhaps the economy take a leg lower in the month of December as we do see some more lockdowns and restrictions go into place. Do we worry about things getting so hot that the Fed needs to step back from zero? I don't think just yet. I think you make a really good point, Mel. I think the next couple of months we're going to see economic activity that really is going to make a lot of skeptics think that we're headed towards a double dip recession. Obviously, there's a lot of optimism built into the stock market about the vaccine and about when our population is going to hit herd immunity. Um, but I suspect that's going to be uh, take a little bit longer than a lot of people think. Right. And so when you think about where interest rates are and the dovishness of the Fed, um, we know that they're going to stay very accommodative. We also know that whatever passes this year or in the next few weeks as far as fiscal stimulus is really not going to be enough to bridge small businesses and some of our most vulnerable citizens over the course of the next few months where this virus is raging across the country and causing all those mitigation attempts. And bringing it back to the stock market, I mean, come on. In 2019, there was no earnings growth year over year for the S&P 500, and it went up 30 percent. In 2020, earnings are likely to be down 15 percent, and it's up almost 15 percent. So at some point, something's got to give. And I think Guy kind of nailed it. Careful what you wish for by wishing rates so much lower because what did they do up today? The 10-year yield, it ticked up a little bit here. So, you know, any upward volatility on rates is going to be really bad for the stock market near term. What is the message to the markets in your view, Tim, after this afternoon? Uh, that, first of all, the, the, the statement was a non-event. All right, let's be clear. Uh, I think the sense that markets have surprised to their resilience, it's almost a Fed pat on the back, uh, obviously. And, and on some level, look, We've been all somewhat critical of the Fed, some of us more than others. And, and, but what the Fed had to do and step in, the Fed was, was aggressive, uh, and they were more aggressive, once again, than policymakers. So um, I, I think the message is that we are going to do what it takes. We have the toolbox, uh, et cetera. If anything, yes, that's the symmetry dynamic of inflation means they can overshoot. We, we've been hearing that for two years. Um, I, what I'm concerned about is an asset bubble, especially in housing. And, and that's one of these things. In fact, we had Peter Booker on last week who writes great stuff. And, and he talked about uh, the absurdity of the Fed in buying the mortgage-backed market. I agree. The absurdity of, of the Fed also just buying high-grade corporates. So uh, these are the things to worry about. 2018, if you remember, is the year that central banks around the world tried to take liquidity out of the market. Mm -hmm. And it was a disaster. And it ended in, in the, one of the worst Decembers the markets have ever had uh, in DEC 2018. So we just have to be very careful. What we have right now is 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 artificial uh, in terms of the market's support system. At some point, that will be taken away, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I'm not running for the door. Yeah, and we didn't get much clarity on asset purchases and the changes that could potentially happen in the future, whether it be moving towards the longer end of the curve or a scaling back MBS. Let's bring in Steve Leesman for more. He's been uh, following this all. You were on that nice Zoom call with all your fellow Fed reporters. Steve, what stood out to you this afternoon? Um, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what's been said here for a couple of reasons. If I could just throw down the uh, the gauntlet a little bit. Um, first of all, I think you're judging the chairman's pain wrong. I, I don't think he's worried about what happens when this economy accelerates. He's very keenly focused on the next four or five months, if you ask me. And he's keenly worried about what's going to happen with the economy. And, and you can't have one part of the discussion about what happens when we take off without having the first part of the discussion about where we are when we take off. If you think about the trajectory, and, and I guess I'm just sort of imitating the picture up there for, uh, for Powell, but 
if you think about it, we, we could be down here or we could be up here. And we could be going like this or we could be going like that. And that really depends on how we get over here. And it's very important uh, to, to think about what the uh, damage is that's going to happen to the economy over the next four or five months. The other thing is I'll just uh, take on my good friend and musical colleague, uh, Mr. Seymour, here. I don't think it was a nothing statement um, because the Federal Reserve actually took quite a monumental act, I would say, in pegging asset purchases to the same goals as interest rates, which are the idea that it's going to be um, uh, uh, linking it to achieving maximum employment and price stability. We didn't ever have that guidance before. That tells you, I think, the Fed is going to be involved in asset purchase for quite a long time further. I think that's pretty bullish for the market. I think there is going to be a time when they're going to have a discussion about bringing down those asset purchases. But the Fed, first of all, gave us guidance on that, which it had really not done ever before, linked it to interest rates and sort of told us it's going to be happening for a while. It was guidance, although some people are wringing their hands because substantial further progress is is still ambiguous in some respects, Steve, although I think that the consensus oh, yeah. no, no. is still that, that it's going to be there with $120 billion worth of asset purchases per month for the foreseeable future. I think that's right. And we will be having a discussion, which you know was, was mentioned at the top of the show, of the idea that we're going to be bringing that number down over time, especially if the economy does do better than expected. I think that'll be the first thing to go. And I think there's a reason, by the way, why... They separated, they said 80 billion and 40 billion of mortgage, 80 billion treasuries, 40 billion, because I think that mortgage number may be the mark to come down probably first. They'll do it, I think, in a measured way. I think what happened, Melissa, is the Fed took out a piece of paper and wrote on the top guidance for asset purchases and then put two things in there. But there's a lot of blank space, I think you're right, on the guidance that is to come. I think they'll be filling that in over time. Hey, Steve, so, uh, uh, yes, there's, there's cold rain and snow out there, both literally and in the markets. But, but you talk about the Fed that has now pegged interest rates to purchases. Doesn't the, isn't this circular? The Fed totally, at least, is pinning the, 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 the long end of the bond market, too, aren't they? And so, I, I, first of all, uh, totally respect, and you give some great insight into the nuances of Fed policy here. And I don't think any of us are suggesting that, that the, the economy is strong. But, but the, the interest rate dy dynamic doesn't seem any different to me than yesterday when I think they control at least the long end of the curve for now. Uh, and if, I think you're right about that, Tim. And I think if they don't actually control it spot on, then they can control it if they want. They held in abeyance this idea of lengthening the duration of their portfolio to the extent that they uh, could go in and sell short, buy long, push down or, or, or flatten the curve or even, uh, uh, you know, cause it to, to invert if they wanted to. Um, I don't think they want to do that now. I think, again, Powell's been playing a bit of a waiting game on fiscal policy. I think he's waiting to see what they come up with. If this $900 billion pack, dollar package uh, does pass, it's going to take a little pressure off of him to kind of wait and see. He can say, I have my pedal to the metal here. Now Congress is doing their thing. I think if, if the talks on stimulus had or relief had fallen apart, we'd be having a different conversation about what the Fed had done today. Steve, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Steve Leisman. Well, one consequence of the Fed's actions has been a surge in Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency surging past $20,000 today for the first time ever. It's now up nearly 190% this year. And BK, there's been a lot of recent uh, news flow that's driving some of this action as well. 
Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things that are really driving it besides the macro tailwinds, which we just all talked about, but you have a lot of institutional adoption. So you've had over the last week or so, you've had MassMutual uh, say that they're going to be uh, buying into Bitcoin. You've had corporate treasuries with MicroStrategy and Square buying into Bitcoin. So you kind of have these large, strong-handed buyers coming in. And let's remember, there's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist. There's 18.5 million Bitcoin currently in circulation. The extra 3.5 million Bitcoin are going to be created over the next 100 years. So the supply is severely constrained in an environment, just like we talked about with the Fed, they're just going to continue to print money. It doesn't matter what the economy does. They're just going to continue to print money. And so investors are saying, well, I can buy gold, which is the traditional one, or I can buy Bitcoin, which is digital gold with a venture capital tech kicker. Yeah. And, and some CEOs are saying, I'm, I'm going to buy Bitcoin instead of having cash on the balance sheet, which is the case in, in uh, MicroStrategy and, and their cash reserves. When we spoke with Michael Saylor, um, you might ask out there be asking, what about the technicals on this breakout? Well, Carter Braxton worth the Cornerstone Macro actually sent this chart along. And this is what he wrote. He wrote uh, this move is, quote unquote, a proper breakout, an old fashioned textbook breakout. Guy, what do you think? He's right. I mean, and first of all, and Brian Kelly, talk about somebody that's been early. Usually early in our business is wrong. Uh, early in this case has been spot on. And, and I think his stewardship throughout this has been fantastic. And I'm not trying to patronize him. I, I mean that. With that said, Carter happens to be right because we're through those levels we saw. I think it was December of 2017, if memory serves. So if this was just a chart of Caterpillar or John Deere or Microsoft, and you broke through that prior all-time high, we'd probably be saying the same thing. Now, I think in terms of Bitcoin, it obviously needs to hold these levels for a while, but you could very well be setting up for the next leg higher for all the reasons that Brian just outlined. And I think we sort of played that that game. We've gone, we've done that drill before. We said if you saw a chart and you didn't know what it was, you didn't see the axis, um, what, what would you think about it? And, and that's what basically you're saying. So, Dan, couple that along with all of the news pegs that Brian Kelly had mentioned. What do you think at this point? Yeah, I, and I agree with Guy. You know, BK has been all over this. And, and one of the biggest legs, yeah, I think, Tim, of his bull thesis has been the adoption by, um, you know, big institutions and, and kind of um, just a broader um, sense of high net worth individuals. So that's all happening, infrastructure for that to happen. I'll mention this. I mean, you know what it's really stolen a lot of thunder from is gold, right? GLD, if you look at this thing, and I know Guy has pounded the table a few times, this thing bounced, um, you know, over the last week or so, right as uh, Bitcoin was kind of consolidating. It's down about 10% from its all-time highs made in early August when the 10-year Treasury was trading about 50 bips at all-time lows. GLD looks like it's kind of poised to play a little catch-up to Bitcoin, and you may see some money flow back into that because there are a lot of investors who don't know how to buy and hold Bitcoin or whatever you guys call it. What do you guys call it, uh, BK? HODL or some, something like that? HODL. Right. So that's digital gold. Hodl. H O D L. Hodl. Yeah. Hodl, yeah. Exactly. Hodl. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, we've got, by the way, much more in Bitcoin's big year on our website. So head on over to CBC.com slash pro. Check it out. Coming up, 20% upside from here. JP Morgan's Marco Kalanovich lays out the three reasons why he is super bullish. In fact, the biggest bull on the street heading into the new year. But first, shares of Lennar on the move after reporting earnings will bring you all the details when Fast Money returns.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lennar, the stock hitting after hours highs on results. Let's get to Diana Olick, who's got the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, Lennar is one of the nation's largest home builders, and it reported a strong Q4 beat on earnings per share at $2.82 versus estimates of $2.37 and revenue of $6.8 billion versus estimates of $6.65 billion. Its new orders were up 16% year-over-year, backlog up 21%. Deliveries were down 2%, but that's actually stronger than the street expected, and it was due to the initial drop-off in spring sales from COVID. Now, Lennar Chairman Stuart Miller said in the release, the confluence of millennials starting families and creating households of their own, along with the pro-housing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, has materially strengthened demand. This surge in demand for housing combined with the market's inability to produce sufficient homes to meet this demand, has exacerbated the already well-documented undersupply of new and existing homes for sale. Now that, of course, helps boost price. The average sale price was unchanged for deliveries at 393000 but for new orders rose dramatically to 412000 from 394000 Now co-CEO John Jaffe said the sales improvement could have been stronger if we had singular focus on volume, but instead we balance sales and production to drive growth in gross margin and cash flow while allowing price appreciation to cover future cost escalation. Now, of course, we get housing starts tomorrow morning at 8.30. Single-family permits have not been that great, Melissa, so we'll be looking for some improvement there. As you saw Stuart Miller saying, we need to pump up the construction. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick in Washington. Uh, Tim Seymour, where do you go with this trade? It's been hot. We've heard from various CEOs saying that prices are strong, and that's thanks in part to those low mortgage rates, which is thanks in part to the Fed continuing to buy mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, and, and rates are going to stay low. The housing market is going to remain strong. There's an affordability issue in our country, though, and I, I think that's one of the troubling parts of the housing trade. Uh, I do think that there's tremendous support uh, for the components and the building materials. And so and, and, you know, investors look at the XHB ETF and you can see the top 10 you know, weightings in, in the XHB are not homemakers. Uh, they're not home builders. Um, it's Whirlpool. It's Mohawk. It's Train. It's Carrier. Um, it's Restoration Hardware, it's Williams-Sonoma, uh, and even Home Depot. So uh, to me, those are the trades. And if you had to buy one of those stocks, it would probably be, for me, Home Depot over time. Builders or a wider basket guy? It's interesting. So I think Tim just nailed it down. But what I'll tell you is we talk about four major home builders, Lennar, Toll Brothers, Pulte Homes, and DHI. They're four similar companies, but in a lot of ways, four very different companies. And in terms of that answer to that question, I would stay with Lennar here. And one of the main reasons is 
You know, Diana mentioned the backlog up 21 percent and dollar value. The backlog's up 24 percent. And oh, by the way, they gave full year guidance for next year, which is pretty remarkable in this environment. Probably they sandbagged a little bit. So even if you put a 10 multiple on this stock, which I think is reasonable, you're talking about a stock that should trade back to that 86, 87 dollar level that we saw earlier this year. So in terms of home builders, I think Lennar is fine here off this quarter. Dan? Yeah, I, I think Tim has had the home, uh, the housing trade, the Home Depot trade correct. I will just tell you this. Home Depot has not kept pace with the S&P 500. It has not made a new high since uh, back in August here. And it's down about 7.5%. It's made a series of lower highs and lower lows. It just bounced off of key support at 260. I think it's one of the worst-looking charts in the S&P 500. The relative strength is horrific. I think you see a break of 260, especially if we don't get the sort of fiscal stimulus that people are expecting. I think the Home Depot trade is done for the winter. Mm. All right, we've got much more ahead here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Wall Street's biggest bull, J.P. Morgan's Marco Kulanovic, joins us next. Where does he see stocks heading in the new year? That prediction ahead. Plus, Twitter on a tear. But one little birdie on our panel says it's time to take profits. That and a lot more when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was another record day on Wall Street with the Nasdaq closing at a new all-time high. Our next guest sees more records ahead as we head into the new year. J.P. Morgan's Marco Kalanovich is Wall Street's biggest bull. He's got a 4,400 price target on the S&P 500 for the end of next year. Marco joins us now on the Fast Line. Marco, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you, Melissa. Today, we clearly saw leadership in tech, but you don't expect that to be the leadership group going into next year. And you see next year um, being marked by... A few V's. Can you explain? Yeah, so we basically expect uh, vaccines. That will be the first V to, um, to drive economic growth, especially in the second half. Um, and we think that's actually uh, going to cause value and cyclicals to outperform. Uh, so basically, uh, that's our view. And we also see that in an environment of declining volatility. So those will be kind of three V's, vaccines, value and, and declining VIX or declining volatility. We were just having a Fed discussion, and you make clear in the notes that I've read, Marco, that you don't think that the, what happened with the Fed today was really anything impactful when it comes to um, the markets or your market call. But at the same time, um, should we start to worry in the context of what you are forecasting for the markets, 4,400, which is very bullish, should we start to worry about the economy actually snapping back so quickly 
that it shows signs of, of heating up, inflation spikes up, and that the Fed actually starts to, to think about taking the punch bowl away? So, so no, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, worried about that for the following reasons. So first, I think the, uh, it's going to take a little while for the, for the population to get vaccinated and for the economy to fully reopen. So we see that really in the second half. You know, secondly, Fed said they are not planning to raise rates uh, until 2023, and they indicated they would be willing to tolerate inflation overshoot. Keep in mind, for the last decade, we had inflation undershooting 2%. So I think they can, they can be patient. And, and again, we, we see that more as a sort of second half, the economic recovery uh, story. But we, see, we think that market will sort of anticipate that and, and, and move, move ahead. Hey, Marco, it's Tim. Thanks for hey, joining Marco, us. It's Brian uh, Kelly. Is the dollar... Go ahead, Brian. Uh, so, so Marco, it's Brian Kelly. Sorry, I'm just curious. You know, as we as we see this increase, Fed's probably going to look for interest uh, for inflation around four percent uh, ish or so. They've said that. Does that impact your uh, forecast at all? So, no, not initially. You know, we think that sort of the uptick in, in inflation expectations will give a boost to value and cyclicals that will lead the market. Um, and they will still keep the, the rate at zero, the near-term rate, and they are still purchasing, actually, uh, uh, fixed-income securities, so keeping the lid also, to some extent, on the back end of the curve. So we think that we will see some steepening that should help the value in cyclicals. It doesn't necessarily help uh, the growth and momentum stocks like technology, uh, secular growth stocks, but we think there is going to be some very broad index inflows into equities as investors reallocate from bond to equity. So that's going to keep sort of also that growth and momentum segment afloat. Um, so, so we don't see that at least for the next year inflation to be negative uh, for the equities. Tim, you have a question? Marco, um, we played a game yesterday with making up our acronyms, and I chose one that was RISE, which basically was cyclicals as it relates to commodities and emerging markets. What's your call on those into next year? So, so, so I like both. I like both of those. I, I often find him, me and you agree. So basically, weaker dollar, stronger growth, a steeper yield curve, a recovery from coronavirus. We think all of that helps value, and all of that helps emerging markets. You know, emerging markets are uh, exposed uh, to inflation expectations. They're exposed to commodities, and we see sort of as the economy heats up in the second half of the year, that basically gives a lift uh, to emerging markets. Emerging markets, if you look at the broad index. Uh, it's still below its 2007 peak in dollar yeah. terms, you know, so we think actually there could be some more meaningful reallocation towards emerging markets and also value cyclical stocks. So this is sort of a part of the same part of the same trade. Given where valuations are right now, Marco, and, and given the groups you see leading the market next year, is tech a short going into 2021? So, you know, because we have this uh, quite optimistic S&P price target that cannot be achieved unless tech also go up, you know. So I would say, um, I, I wouldn't say you should short, uh, short that these are still companies that, that are, uh, you know, innovating, generating uh, decent uh, revenues, you know. So I wouldn't necessarily say shorting, but I do believe that value, if you look at the sectors like energy, like materials, industrials, uh, financials as well, I think they're going to sort of lead, they're going to outperform, you know. So it depends. If you're a long-short investor, market neutral, you may. But overall, if you're long-long investors, we think actually, this uh, tide will lift uh, all boats. All right. Marco, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Happy holidays. Marco Kalanovic, JP Morgan. Guy, what do you make of Marco's call? 
Well, it's interesting, and I'm just going to read. So, so Jerome Powell was asked about, you know, asset prices mm -hmm. today, and he said PEs are high, but risk-free rates will remain low for an extended time, so PEs don't matter. I mean, or not <laughs> relevant. So I'm just, which is, you know, fantastic, I guess. So, I mean, any price target makes sense when, when the chairman of the Federal Reserve makes a comment like that. I, Again, I think he's probably spot on. I don't think we go there in a straight line, and I'll stand by that. I think he's probably going to wind up being right. But I think, you know, we don't get there from here, and I think there's a real good chance we revisit this sort of 3,400 level at some point early next year in the S&P 500. So evaluations don't matter because interest rates are so low. I'll go back to Tim because, because you're the big resource trade proponent does it matter? I mean, why not just stick with technology? Why not just stick where, where the growth is? So, right, because if, if one of the V's is value, who cares? And I, I, that, that connects with me as Guy brings this up. But I think that the dynamic of reacceleration of global PMIs and, again, where we bottomed uh, and the fact that uh, Marco pointed out some of the drivers that, that always work in emerging markets. They include a weaker dollar, they include lower interest rates, but they include a reacceleration. And actually, we do want to see some asset place, uh, some asset price reflation, inflation. So, to me, I, I think that is still an important trade. And I, and I, and guys, highlighting something that should be troubling. Um, but I also think that valuations overall are are, are kind of. People are getting that mulligan on 2021 for sure and mm -hmm. looking to 2022. But um, the technicals, the trends, and I think the drivers for the resource trade are, are make them outperform. Dan? Yeah, so if we're talking about mulligans, we're talking about PEs not mattering, then I'll, I'll just give you three charts that are fantastic, two of which have been my final trades over the last two weeks or so. It's, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, and it's Amazon. I mean, these things have been consolidating massive year-to-date gains, okay, but, but consolidating over the last few months. They're still below the all-time highs made a couple months ago, and they look like they want to explode. So if you're bullish and you think the market keeps grinding higher, and you also think that resource trade or some of these stocks hardest hit, whether it be in transports or in some of these other spaces by the pandemic, have gone too far too fast, and we're going to have, I think, what BK calls a re-rotation, then get back in the F-MAGA trade, because that thing looks like it's about to leave the station. All right, coming up, Starbucks losing some steam, the company offering a chili sales forecast for December, how you can trade it without getting burned. But first, cue the music, because we've got a fast pitch on deck. Our next guest has a red-hot retail name stock you should Add to your shopping cart. We'll bring you that name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Twitter jumping two and a quarter percent after J.P. Morgan upgraded the stock to an overweight. And you might recall one of our traders pitched this name back in June. Check out the instant replay. The sentiment is horrible. Wall Street analysts hate this stock. There's only seven buy ratings, 29 holds, and five sells on this thing. So, you know, no one likes it. It doesn't trade well. I say Jack Dorsey, the CEO of the company, is really kind of stepping up here, and it's going to come out a better platform at the end of it. Last thing, the charts are maybe so bad that they're good. Since then, Twitter is up more than 80 uh, percent. Dan, you even pitched the name once again in November. But what do you do now? 
Yeah, I was a bit screamy on that call there. I mean, listen, I think it filled in that gap. It's making a new all-time high here. It's gotten back to that late 2014 high that could be technical resistance. Um, listen, you know, that was my target somewhere in the mid to low 50s here. We've gotten there. I'm going to move on. I've done well being a buyer of this. Now it looks like it's very well loved. I want to see this thing pull back and then let's set up into their analyst meeting in the new year. These guys need to do better on products. They just announced they're shutting down Periscope. They haven't gotten anything right on the innovation front. Hopefully they can lay that out for the next leg higher. Um, I'll look to get in on a bit of a pullback, but I'm out of it here. If memory serves, Tim Seymour, this was your final trade <laughs> just last night. You've got a great memory, Mel. And, and you know, not surprising that, that Dan and I, I'm on the other side of Screamy Dan here. Although, first of all, I want to say that it was a great call by Dan. And, and I, you know, I've been long Twitter through this period. So I stay long. Uh, I, look, I, I look at the ad growth, and I'm very impressed. I look at the EBITDA growth. It's not where you'd want it to be at this stage for Twitter. Um, and I look at 53 as a breakout level that it's been trying to do multiple times. And I think a little consolidation here after a big, big run why don't you go higher? I think you do. All right. So Twitter was a home run. Let's get another great idea out there. Check out shares of Capri Holdings. The stock is up nearly 90% since the start of November. Our next guest says there's even more room to run. Let's welcome back Barbara Ann Bernard, CEO of Wincrest Capital. Barbara Ann, great to have you with us. Um, UBS is today just upping the price target to 50 bucks, playing a little bit of a catch-up, seeing a turnaround uh, in the next fiscal year. What do you like most here about Capri, especially given the strong run it's had? So we've held the stock for a while, and certainly it's had a strong run. We still think this story has legs. Um, essentially, you have earnings acceleration. And prior to the break, we were talking about the Fed um, maybe setting the PE. That is true, but the consumer still sets the E. And this is a great story in that regard. You had blowout numbers on November 5th. And if you look at October website traffic data, it's up 38% for Michael Kors month on month, up 16% month on month for Versace. So these are brands that are really resonating with the consumer. Um, when you talk to this company and you talk to them and ask them how they're going to grow sales, they are really bullish on China. They think the two brands that they recently acquired, Jimmy Choo and Versace, are, are underpenetrated there. And they hope to increase store count from 200 to 300 in China and shut stores of Michael Kors in the US. We agree with that. If 20 years ago, China comprised 2% of luxury sales. By 2025, China will be 50% of luxury sales. So we think that is the right growth strategy for this company and absolutely doable. The second reason we like Capri is it is a margin expansion story. If you look at this at the global luxury peer group, they have EBIT margins in the mid-20s. Hmm. Um, Jimmy Choo and Versace were sort of 8 11% EBIT margin stories. This company is targeting 15%. We think that is also doable. And how are they doing that? They know their customer better through digitization now, and they are able to reduce SKUs 30 to 40% while increasing prices 10 to 15%. And so this is what the analysts are now starting to incorporate into their models. Um, so we like it for earnings acceleration. We like margin expansion. We also like what we are paying for it, even after this run. So if you take today's share price, you are paying 10 and a half times our FY01 EPS estimate of $3.74 a share. We think our estimate is conservative, 
That's what this company was doing pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it, let's triangulate that valuation. Let's look at it on some of the parts, EV to sales. Luxury group uh, globally, sort of the peer group average, is a six times EV, to, EV sales multiple. We can debate all day long, is Michael Kors luxury? But Jimmy Choo and Versace undeniably are. So let's take their sales, put a six times multiple on them, and you get today's market cap. So you're getting Michael Kors for free. Mm. And Michael Kors did $4 billion of sales uh, last year. So Michael Kors is worth something. So if you just put a one times EV uh, to sales uh, to, uh, multiple on Michael Kors sales, uh -huh. you get a $75 price target, wow. which is 85% upside from here. Wow. And I can make the argument that one times is conservative, given Tapestry, its peer, trades at two times sales. So this was an unloved stock that traded like a department store, and I think 10.5 times earnings uh, is, is a great value for a portfolio of luxury brands. All right. Uh, what a pitch. Guy, you got a question for Barbara Ann. Quick question, but Barbara Ann basically answered it uh, over the last minute or so. But my question is, I'm sure you have positions that you're tactical. In other words, you'll trade around. But clearly, given what you just said, there's no reason to be tactical here. And despite the fact the stocks went from 9 to 44 since March or April, uh, this thing is still going higher. So there's no reason uh, to be trading around this. Is that accurate? That's right. I mean, if there were a pullback, we would add. All right. Highly convicted trade. Barbara Ann, thank you. We'll see you soon. Barbara Ann um, of, of Windcrest Capital, it is time to vote. So are you buying Barbara Ann's pitch on Capri? Guy, what do you say? Well, you remember Steve Grosso pitched this a while back and we were mm -hmm. buyers. Can you read my smart board there, Melissa? Perhaps you can do that for me. Grotto. Right, Blue Grotto. You notice I actually wrote it in blue. Do you know where the Blue Grotto is, perhaps? I'm no, sure you do. I don't. You're a world traveler. It's actually in Capri. Uh, so good Capri. for her, good for the Blue Grotto. And I think this stock can absolutely go higher from here. And good for Steve Grasso, by the way, as well. Tim Seymour, what do you say? So this stock has been rocking and a rolling and rocking and a reeling. And therefore, at 40 bucks, I think this thing's a sell. That's, a, that's an S. It's not a buy. Okay. Um, and, and I think ultimately the, the story here is there's a reason why it was trading at a discount to the sum of the parts. Uh, I do think that the department store and, and the mall dynamic is something that's still a headwind. And after this massive move and a lot of short interest coming in and people getting killed, I think it's been a great trade. Take some profits. Dan. Yeah, so here's the thing. I'm with Tim on that. I'm a sell right here at 40 bucks, but I'd be a buyer. She seemed very convicted that she'd be buying it on the downside. She made a great power pitch, and I sincerely mean that. If they get back to their 2019 peak earnings in two years or so, just as that China expansion that she detailed is happening, this thing is going to be much higher. I just don't think you get there from here, as Guy Adami likes to say. All right, so Brian Kelly, where do you stand? So I'm going to be with uh, Guy Adami. Now, I feel like the kid who forgot his homework because I didn't have my uh, fancy smart board like Guy has. But I, I love the China expansion story. I love that they're shutting down stores here in the U.S. And, you know, sure, you want to tactically trade it. You want to wait for a, a little bit of a dip. Knock yourself out. Go for it. But I like the long-term sto long story of this name. Three of you guys, by the way, had no whiteboards. It looks like you went into the recycling bin and pulled a piece of paper out because you didn't have it. So kudos to Guy. He gets a gold star. The traders, obviously, they're split. 
It is your turn to decide out there. Are you buying Barbara Ann's pitch on Capri Holdings? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. The results at the end of the show. Coming up, getting excited about peppermint latte season. Well, you might be the only one. (laughs) What Starbucks said about the future that put a little chill in the stock. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. Starbucks losing some steam today. The coffee chain forecasting weaker than expected U.S. sales for December. The news comes as the company also suspends one of their biggest perks, happy hour promotions because of COVID-19 concerns. It wasn't just Starbucks, though. Southwest also raising some red flags for the month of December. Stock losing altitude after raising their daily cash burn outlook, saying that cancellations are up, bookings are soft. So are there some serious consumer concerns emerging as we see more lockdown restrictions coming into play? Dan. Yeah, I think we're going to see this. I also think we're going to see in retail, Mel, that you're going to see a lot of very promotional activity. And then once we see the Christmas season pass, I think things are going to get really, really lean. We've already seen some credit card data and some consumer spending data that's really disappointed over the last month. So I would expect this to continue, even if we do get a fiscal stimulus package in the next week or so, this is not putting money in people's pockets where they're going to go out on a discretionary basis and spend. This is kind of just staying afloat here. So I'm particularly worried about consumer spending over the next couple months. Should we be worried about um, about China for Starbucks, Tim? I mean, they, they had actually specifically mentioned that China was still a bright spot. I mean, should we, sorry, should we be concerned about Starbucks overall because China is still strong? Yes. Yeah, so you're highlighting what I would highlight, which is that, that F first quarter Q1 Starbucks China sales will be normal. Um, in other words, they will have made it through this cycle, and that's their expectation. The fact that we were down 4% November, 3% October on those U.S. comps is not a surprise. They totally keep pace with the move higher in COVID. Look, this is a reopening trade, and as bad and as awful and sad and scary as it is right now, we can see the other side on Starbucks, and this is a company that has done very well through COVID. So, no, I'm buying this weakness, and it shouldn't be a surprise that the trends are weaker as we're in lockdown mode in this country. It's a scary time. People aren't going to Starbucks, but they will. Um, BK, where do you stand? Well, you know, we asked the question of does, is this a sign of a weaker consumer? Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's a sign of a bifurcated consumer. So you think about, you know, somebody who goes to Starbucks. Yes, there's going to be people that are addicted to it and go every single day. But then it's somewhat of an aspirational purchase, that peppermint latte at $6. If you don't have a job or you're concerned about it or you're locked down, you're not going to buy that peppermint latte anymore. So I think you have this bifurcation going on. I don't want to buy it as a China play. I think there's better ways to play China. I'd rather go the resource play. And so then here I'm left with uh, a weak U.S. It's, it's just a no-touch for me at this point. I think those suckers may be more than six bucks at this point, sadly. Uh, coming up, there's still time to vote in our Twitter poll. Are you buying Barbara Ann's pitch on Capri? Head on over to Twitter. Let us know. We'll have the results straight ahead. But first, the cybersecurity name seeing some heavy interest in the options pits. We'll tell you what it is when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. There's a look at our Kramer cam. Jim is sitting down exclusively with Boeing CEO David Calhoun. That is a must-see interview. Catch it coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Moving on, check out shares of software company Datadog. The stock gaining more than 3% today, and we saw some interesting activity in the name in the options pits. Let's get to Bono and Eisen with the action. Bono in. Hey, Melissa, thanks so much. So, yeah, taking a look at Datadog, 
The stain was extremely active today. Calls outpaced puts about 12 times to one. And what we saw is that the option volume was multiples of what we've seen, almost twice as much of what we've seen over a longer term trend in terms of average daily volume. The options are implying about a 3.5% move in either direction between now and Friday, seemingly on the back of news between integration between Datadog and AWS. And the trade that really jumped out to me, about 9,000 of the December 105 calls, or roughly the at-the-money calls, traded about 150. A large chunk of those were bought. So you're risking about a dollar and a half or a percent and a half for upside above 106.50 between now and Friday. Short-term trading on a lot of activity, super skewed towards the calls. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, really good spot on Bonneman's part here. Just look at that technical setup here. It looks like it wants to make a push back towards 120, which was the prior all-time high from a couple months ago, risking 1.5% for a short-term momentum move. Looks like a good way to do it. Just remember, with those weekly calls, when you're trading them, you get the direction wrong by just a smidge, you're going to lose all that money. So you really have to be convicted or use stops when you're trading them that way. But I like, I like this uh, spot by Bonneman. All right. Be ice. Thank you, Bono and Eisen. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Well, there is still time to cast your vote for tonight's Fast Pitch. Do you think Capri is a good bet? Head on over to our Twitter poll and vote at CNBC Fast Money. The results when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast. It is time to find out if the Twitterverse was buying Barbara and Bernard's fast pitch on Capri. It was close, but it doesn't look like the viewers were shopping for this one. 52% said no. 48% said yes. Time for the final trade. Let's go around. The- I, you got to wonder if Barbara Ann's actually listening and actually cares what the Twitterverse says. But Tim, what do you say to final trade? Well, if she's listening to us, that was a fantastic pitch. A lot of information in there. Very good fundamental analysis. Um, Starbucks. I'm buying this weakness. And again, Starbucks is going to be a stronger company coming out of all this. Brian Kelly. So, you know, we talked, Marco talked about a weak dollar, Marco from JP Morgan. And I think you can play EEM, emerging markets. You get China exposure. Asia has done a much better job with COVID, reopening a lot sooner. EEM is the way to play it. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so we talked Bitcoin. We talked about the dollar's demise. We talked about inflation. Um, You can buy BK's Bitcoin. It's already run a whole heck of a lot, um, and he's been all over that. But I'd say you buy Guy's Gold. He's actually had a great call on this thing. I think it just bounced off of technical support, the GLD at 170. Play for a move back towards 190 over the next couple months. Guy, what do you say? You know, Capri Holdings has a Georgetown connection, by the way. It comes in the form of John Idle, number one, just to get that in there because it's all about Georgetown all the time. And I will tell you the PAAS, Pan American Silver, I think goes higher from here, Mel. Silver and gold in the final trade. Thanks for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.